Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the magazine. But today on The Profile, this is the show where we sit down with someone and hear more about their life, their faith, their testimony. I'm delighted to say that I've got a very special guest in all the way from America. It's Johnny Moore. Johnny uh, does many things, and we'll hear lots about that in this interview. He's the head of the Kairos Company. He sits on Donald Trump's Faith Advisory Council uh, and much more besides. Johnny, it's great to have you in the studio. Welcome to Premier. It's great to be here. So you've uh, flown in here. You've been all over the world in the last two days. You've been in Israel. Um, you're at a large Muslim gathering, I think, on the, on the South Coast just uh, literally a few hours ago. Do you want to tell us uh, about that to begin with? Because I think people would be fascinated to know what's, what's a Christian doing at a, at a massive Muslim gathering on the South Coast. You know, I'm hugely concerned about the persecution of Christians around the world. And Pakistan is a country that's taken my attention a lot in recent years. And you know, long before the Christians were persecuted in Pakistan, there was a group of um, minority Muslims, uh, the Ahmadi community. Most people in the UK know who Ahmadis are. Most people in the United States don't. And so I've t- sort of taken it on as a task to be an advocate for this minority sect of Islam that's persecuted even more so in Pakistan than the Christians. And that's even hard to believe if you know what's going on in Pakistan. Uh, so I, there I was as an evangelical Christian speaking to 37,000 Muslims about an hour outside of, of London uh, saying uh, that religious freedom for all is our priority as a Christian community. And we stand in solidarity with you. And and it, it was an amazing, an amazing experience. I think that's a really important point, actually, because often you find Christians who are very keen to speak out for Christian freedoms, but perhaps are quite silent when it comes to other uh, religions that are, that are having that much persecution. So how how do you encourage Christians to care about religious freedom in general and not just about Christians? Well, you know, the, the Bible gives us direction on this. The book of Galatians says that we ought to care for our family of believers, but it basically says, you know, in, in biblical terminology, like, you can't end there, right? I mean, it's in, and by the way, it is about the Great Commission, but it isn't exclusively about the Great Commission. It comes from your heart. And, you know, from a political perspective, uh, you, you don't have religious freedom unless you have it for all. From a spiritual perspective, a theological perspective, we are as obligated to do this. And, and it's what the New Testament tells us. And in my practical experience working uh, with persecuted Christians around the world, I've actually found the Muslim community and throughout the Middle East uh, to be an incredible advocate in the heart of the ISIS crisis for, for Christians. In fact, all of my work in northern Iraq in 2014 and 2015 on behalf of Christians and Yazidis began at the invitation of King Abdullah of Jordan. It was a Muslim king asking Christians in the United States to help 
Christians in the Middle East. And and it's not because they weren't helping them. You know, he personally sent airplanes. They took 10,000 people into, into Jordan in an airlift over a couple of days, Christians. But he said, listen, there are like 2 billion of you around the planet and you're just going to be more effective. And so it was a Muslim who invited me to help <laughs> Christians uh, in, in northern Iraq. And so, you know, if, if uh, our scripture tells us if one member of the body suffers, everyone suffers. Um, but you know, we all live in this world and uh, the best way to be a light is to to embrace freedom for all. So here on the profile, we always like to go back to the beginning and ask someone about their life growing up. So tell me, where did Christian faith come in for you? Did you grow up in a Christian family? Yeah, I did. I, I grew up in the deep south in the United States. We were in church uh, every time the doors were open. You know, it was it was part of our culture, uh, which was what was so tragic in, in my uh, spiritual experience when my parents uh, went through a very, very dramatic divorce when I was 12. And so I remember like having been in church every single time the doors were open, like we were as Christian culture as you could possibly get. And yet uh, it wasn't enough to hold my my family uh my family together. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, Sam, through that whole process, my parents went to the church for help. And the pastor who was um, counseling them uh, later on, uh, it, it was discovered that he was actually in an illicit relationship with another pastor's wife. And so I went through as a young kid an entire crisis of faith because of my growing up in a cultural Christianity. I didn't own it myself. I watched hypocrisy around me. I saw the weakness of faith in my family's life. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I love the apologetics emphasis uh, here at Premier, because I was even as a 12, 13 year old kid, I was sort of a little intellectual. And I found that when my heart wasn't in my faith, uh, that there were answers for my mind. And when my mind wasn't in my faith, somehow my heart was tied up in it, too. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that experience uh, is not an uncommon one in the United States, I guess. Mm. So how did your faith kind of come through that? I mean, was your parents' divorce and the way that was handled or badly handled by the church, that, that had a kind of direct impact on your on your faith in God, did it? Yeah, I mean, it, it automatically you know put me in a situation where I had to answer very difficult questions as a kid. And, you know, there was a, there was a Christian author who's really, really famous. I've since had the opportunity to thank him personally. But, you know, my church was playing a uh, video series by Josh McDowell, you know, the, the famous uh, Christian apologist and, and popular author. Uh, and, you know, it just kept me hooked in. I, I just couldn't I couldn't disconnect my brain from it. And then I watched through this terrible tragedy, the way God provided for our family. And I, I as a 14 year old kid, I, I, I learned how to do magic tricks. I started doing magic tricks at a local restaurant to help, you know, pay for my family because we were thrust into poverty because of all of this. And then one day, my mom walked up to the mailbox uh, in Lynchburg or in Florence, South Carolina, where we were living, and there was a letter from Lynchburg, Virginia, and the letter was from Liberty University, and uh, it was a scholarship for my mom to attend a Bible institute. And so my family moved from South Carolina to Virginia on faith the day, literally the day they the local power company cut off our power because we couldn't pay the bill. Um, to Virginia, you know, where she enrolled in a Bible school, and uh, we lived in a basement apartment. Uh, we had two bedrooms. Mom slept on the couch every night because she wanted to give my sister and I the dignity of our own private bedrooms. Uh, and that was the beginning of a journey that eventually led to my working at Liberty University. So tell me more about Liberty University. For those who don't know, I understand this is the largest Christian college in America. So tell me about what brought you there and what you did there, because you were there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it might, it might be the largest Christian college in the world now, over 100,000 students, 15,000 students on campus and, and a pioneer in online education. Uh, but I, I uh, you know, 
there, there we were in Lynchburg, Virginia, after my, um, my, you know, my parents' divorce. My mom gets this scholarship in the mail. We started getting connected in the local community there. And what I discovered is God had a plan for my life. Like I was so disillusioned with the church because of because of our experience. But I knew God. I don't, you know, I don't even know how to say this, but I knew He had a call on my life, but I didn't want that call. So I'm in my local public high school, and I I literally had this conversation with myself, and it was, well, if I'm going to have to preach, then I might as well take a speech class, you know. And I was just so disgruntled, and I took this speech class, and this um, amazing teacher in our lo- in our local high school uh, took me under her wing, and I was the worst public speaker in Virginia <laughs> in my first year, and then I became the number one public speaker in Virginia because of, because of this teacher, and. That caught the attention of of uh, the local high school um, that was attached to Liberty University, and and someone anonymously scholarshiped my uh, sister and I to attend this private school, um, and I, I took over the chapel at the private school because it was really really bad. They were like showing videos, you know, like old VHS tapes and all this stuff, and I was, you know, I, we could do better than this. I started inviting speakers to come speak at our local high school, um, and then that after that, I received an invitation to work at Liberty University as a freshman. And so I, I became the campus pastor uh, at Liberty University uh, when I was 19 years old. We kept we kept the uh, my age basically a secret. Um, <laughs> and they gave me responsibilities, you know, that uh, I either, I basically, you know, a church service that had so declined, it couldn't get worse. It was like a student church service, you know, a huge Christian school and there were like 50 people showing up at this Sunday morning service. Um, and and then like a year later, there were like two thousand students, and it just went on from there. But it's it's because people believed in me. I had mentors uh, that like the founder of Liberty that took me under their wing, and I spent almost thirteen years there, rising from uh, being a student worker to being the senior one of the six people that ran the school, the senior vice president of the school, uh, when it grew from under ten thousand total students to just about a hundred thousand students when I left the school. Um, was thirty million dollars in debt in two thousand seven when I left. It was uh, had a hundred about one point five billion dollars in cash reserves and endowment to ensure the mission of the school continued on. Uh, and I was going to stay there actually for the rest of my career. I mean, I loved Liberty. I loved students. There's nothing like higher education. I was I started writing books then, and then I got a random call one day from someone I'd met in the Middle East in a meeting about persecuted Christians, and it was the a famous. Um, uh, television producer you know, from the United Kingdom originally, uh, Mark Burnett, and he invited me to move to Hollywood uh, and and become his chief of staff. And that was sort of the next phase as I God was pushing me out of my very comfortable life, you know, into a totally totally different world in the heart of Hollywood as an you know an evangelical Christian from Liberty University yeah. of all places. Uh, but I mean, these are two just massively different cultures, aren't they? Liberty University that that is kind of Christian culture central, right? It's, it's a Christian university. Um, it's, it tends to be maybe more conservative, and then Hollywood out on the West Coast, you've got you know a more liberal vibe. You've got much less sort of church background, much less of a kind of Christian culture. So, did you almost feel like a, like a missionary, you know, going to a to a new part of the world where people perhaps wouldn't understand the Christian message so well? Yeah, but people are people, and I, and I think this is where you know, as as a proud member of the millennial generation. Uh, I, I think we're sort of custom design, you know, to uh, move in and out of sectors and worlds and cultures. And, and it's not as hard a, hard a thing for us. But you know, at the time, there was an amazing thing happening in American culture. You know, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey had produced the Bible miniseries. 
uh, which was the number one uh, unscripted series of, of the year. It received an Emmy nomination, 100 million total viewers, and then you know, and yeah. likewise all around the world. I remember it was shown on TV, on mainstream TV channels over here at the same time as it was being shown in America. It arrested the attention of, of everyone. And, and, and I think it made a path for people like me who didn't fit the Hollywood, um, say, stereotype. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I was nervous. Yeah, going for, I mean, going from the heart of Christian culture into the heart of secular culture. But you know what I found? I, I found that, you know, Hollywood isn't against Christianity. It's like it's a business. You know, if, if something succeeds, they do it. If they don't, they don't. And, you know, Hollywood's filled of a bunch of amazing, amazing people who are searching for lots and lots of things. And, you know, unlike New York, which is a very secular city, you know, Los Angeles is a very spiritual city. It's just not a Christian city. And, you know, even my peculiar habits, you know, as a, I'm a Baptist, right? So I, you know, I, I uh, you know, I don't drink and I, I, you know, not, not necessarily, you know, because I believe it's a sin. It's just sort of part of my, uh, part of my tradition. And even there, you know, where so much business is done over drinks, you know, I, I got into these amazing conversations. I, I was describing, you know, I, I, you know, I'm in the tradition of John the Baptist. Like I'm, I'm like a monk, you know, just think of me as a monk, you know, <laughs> it's like, these are decisions I've made with my life, you know, and it was amazing. Like people really respected that. And it, it's uh, one of the reasons why uh, when I left working uh, for Mark and Roma and, and founded my own company, not because I wanted to be a business person, but because I wanted to spend more of my time and energy on helping persecuted Christians and religious minorities around the world. It would give me the flexibility if I have my own company to mm -hmm. do that. It's one of the reasons why I stayed in California, because I actually found my faith so much more alive in the heart of uh, the more secular part mm. of the United States, secular but spiritual, yeah. than I did in the Bible Belt. We've mentioned a few times already you're um, clearly very passionate about the persecuted church, not just persecuted church, but indeed religious minorities around the world where uh, religious freedom is under threat. Where did all that begin for you? You know, when I was uh, a freshman um, at Liberty University, I started uh, paying attention to the world. And I think a year later, I went to India for the first time. And I, I attended a Bible school graduation at a, in a rural part of persecuted India. Um, and I listened to 2,000. This is it's a crazy story. I, Bishop M.A. Thomas led his Bible school in a martyr's oath before they received their diploma. You know, and, it, and, you know, that sounds sort of strange to people that it, it wasn't that Bishop Thomas would. By the way, there were 2000 of these graduates. It wasn't that he was provoking them to martyrdom. It's that he had himself almost been killed more than a dozen times. And he didn't feel like he could, in good conscience, give them a degree unless they knew the cost of that degree in, in the part of the country where he was in. And so he, he had them take a martyr's oath. And I, I felt like. You go through the whole path from my parents' divorce, disillusionment with the church, my own struggle with the ministry part of what I do, and now I'm kind of a tent maker, and I'm still very involved in ministry. It was such a struggle for me, but in India, I felt like I was standing in the book of Acts, and these Christians were willing to die for a faith that I had struggled so hard to live, and it just it profoundly changed my life, and it, and that gave me sort of this ongoing passion to be an advocate for the persecuted church. But somehow this this love affair, theologically speaking, with the persecuted church. Mm. And I found my faith um, again through that experience. And, you know, when you read through the New Testament, like every other page, someone is being persecuted or the church is worried about someone that's being persecuted or praying for it. And, you know, we don't have an... 
I don't know. I just don't think you can live New Testament Christianity unless you're being persecuted or helping those who are Mm -hmm. with your life. And I was always connected to it. But then when ISIS popped up in 2014, it went to a a whole whole different level. And I went on the front lines and I saw it for myself and I'd never seen anything like it. And I decided uh, everyone told me they felt forgotten when I walked through the dusty streets of northern Iraq weeks after Mosul fell and Christians were in the streets and unfinished buildings and all these things. And and they all said that, that word. They just said it again and again. I feel forgotten. Mm-hmm. We're forgotten. How could these people be forgotten? There are two billion people on the planet that profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so I, I just decided to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote Defying ISIS and we raised a lot of money to help them. And, and eventually... I changed, I left working for Mark Burnett. I created my own company because I felt called to invest more time and energy in, in helping these people. Yeah. The company's called Kairos. Yes. And uh, you work with a number of different Christian ministries, um, as, you, as you mentioned, those involved in the persecuted church as well. So bring us up to date with some of the things you've been involved in now through the new company. One of the things that always frustrated me is that um, when it came to the public square, you know, Christians, particularly well-known Christians um, were uh, inarticulate sometimes with what they what they believed and you know the Kairos company helps large uh, organizations and influential leaders better articulate their message and get it to more people and build and building that bridge and, and by the way we're not in the business of deciding for these people what they think you know it's we, we we're agnostic on on their perspective we just want to we believe in the marketplace of ideas it's a better thing if more ideas are out there and freedom of speech and people can argue back and forth so sometimes within my company every single day we're facilitating disagreements in the public square between our clients and we believe that's good and healthy mm. you know because God gave us freedom and God gave us a mind to use. So you could have two people who are both employing your services and disagree with one another and are kind of battling that out in the public square and, and your job is to try and help both sides articulate their message. Yeah, it's uh, which makes it very interesting sometimes, but I think that's 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 better for the world. Well, you and I have something in common there, Johnny, because obviously, you know, heading up Premier Christianity magazine, we're often printing uh, contradictory opinions within the same page of the magazine, but I guess we do it for the same reasons you do, that we believe, that we believe in Christian unity and we believe in understanding where both sides are coming from and uh, you know I often say to people if they pick up the pick up the magazine I don't expect them to change their mind on any given issue but I do expect them to understand where other Christians are coming from that might differ to their perspective yeah I don't believe you actually understand your perspective until you understand the perspective of others and one of the dangerous things in our culture now is you know this hyper politicization of our time which you know the United States has largely led the way or, or at least we learned, you know, from from some of uh, things happening over here. You know, it depends on your perspective. But what has happened is uh, there's been this suppression of speech. Mm-hmm. You know, where where certain digital media companies, you know, have have decided certain ideas are are, are bigoted ideas, or they're and this is a this is a this is a real problem. Like you have to be able to have the marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I used to tell my students, you know, at at uh, at, at Liberty University, that. Um, their own perspective uh, on whatever it is 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 limited by uh, their knowledge of who's different than them, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm I really really believe in the Bible and I believe in Christianity and I and I believe there are intellectual and emotional and practical reasons for believing and like I'm not intimidated by people other people's point of view. In fact, the opposite is true. What I found. 
like when someone publicly criticizes me, which, you know, has happened quite a bit, you know, in the last uh, year and a half because of um, uh, my um, uh, my involvement with the uh, current government in the United States. Um, what I found is every time I reach out to them and I do almost a hundred, almost a hundred percent of the time, someone says something negative about most of the time they haven't even met me. I reach directly out to them, have coffee with them. Like we agree almost always on mm. 80 or 90% of everything, mm. you know, and, and I believe in focusing on those things, yeah. you know, working together on those things. It's why, you know, um, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez uh, and I have, have just uh, founded the Congress of Christian Leaders, a new global organization akin to the World Evangelical Alliance or the World Council of Churches or in our, our country, the National Association of Evangelicals, not to compete with any of them or to be an alternative to any of them. In fact, we'll probably be members of uh, the WEA and the NAE. But our organization's vision is to bring together this amazing group of leaders of churches uh, and organizations around the world for the sole purpose of unity without compromising on on mm. the theology of, of the Bible. Because the fact is that in the United States, despite our very partisan moment, um, when we, and, and sorry, you know, I, I, I believe in miracles, the whole world was concerned about North Korea. There was no progress on North Korea. That it was, you know, everything was escalating. As conservative evangelicals, we reached across to progressive evangelicals. We all united together on a national call to prayer for peace on the Korean Peninsula, and we didn't take any position. You know, some people were pacifists, and some of us believe in just war, and it was all, all, all mixed up. But the one thing we agreed in: we should pray for peace on the Korean Peninsula. And this was a time where these groups were like, weren't agreeing on anything. It was a very, very divisive moment. But everyone sort of put aside the criticism they would receive for being attached to the other. It just called for a national call to prayer. I'm telling you, Sam, three, we, I think it was exactly three weeks later, everything sort of started to thaw. Yeah. You know, and uh, you never know, but it looks like we're in a ever more hopeful place on this. Yeah, I mean, transient problem. As, as you point out, the turnaround on on that kind of world political stage is is quite incredible. And um, there have been those, of course, who who attribute a lot of that to Donald Trump's leadership. Um, those who support Donald Trump have pointed to his track record of of he's promised to do certain things, and he seems to be delivering on almost all of them. Whether it's moving the embassy to Jerusalem or building the wall, or it doesn't matter if these things are controversial or not. I think it's fair to say a lot of people are pointing out that he's at least kept his promises and he's doing what he said he would do. At the same time, you have Christians who who remain very, very uncomfortable with him on a personal level, on his morality, or some would argue lack thereof, um, some of the things he said about minorities or, or women. And so, as you say, it seems like the Christian church in America is massively divided politically on this at the moment. Now, I want to talk a bit about your involvement in this. You mentioned your involvement in the current administration. And, and part of what you do, as I understand it, is you are on a, a, a team of people who are faith advisors to the president. Tell me a bit about that role. Um, perhaps clear away some common misconceptions about what that role is and what that role isn't. Yeah. You know, right before the uh, election, you know, the um I, I, first of all, I, I had a pre-existing relationship with the Trump family that went back to my time at Liberty Liberty University, and so I, I, uh, I knew some of these people. And uh, a few months before the election, they reached out and they asked if they if we would help put together an evangelical advisory group for them. And I, I said, sure, but you know, they can't be required to endorse you. Number two, we have to have a Monday meeting every single Monday, a phone call, same time. Uh, no, no, no press star seven to ask a question like an open conversation. 
you know, if, if those two criteria are met, then, you know, sure, we'll put something together. And he said, no problem. Totally. You know, we, we can do that. And I said right then and there, and I'll say it again here, like had Secretary Clinton called me and asked the same question, I would have done the same thing because I believe as a spiritual leader, like you are morally obligated to provide advice on, on issues when you're asked to provide that advice. You're not morally responsible for whether or not that advice, advice is taken or not. And what to my to my frankly amazing surprise you know this administration not only has continued to ask our advice but they have frequently acted upon our advice and you know i'm just a private citizen i have no official relationship but i've been in the white house now over 50 times and i've watched again and again and again when the administration has adjusted their mm. their point of view and can you give some examples of that for sure. I mean, you know, pro-life issues are obviously important to evangelicals, you know, in, in the United States it, without question. I mean, this is the most pro-life administration we've had. You know, our Supreme Court uh, was was uh, on, on the verge of, of potentially dismantling religious liberty as we knew it, you know, in the United States. And, I, and I'm not just talking about, you know, controversial issues on sexuality. I'm talking about very, very fundamental things like like the United States government was requiring Catholic nuns to provide contraception against their conscience. Again, this was this was like this was a terrible, terrible trend. I mean, in California, where I live, I mean, we were looking at a bill that was going through our state house that would have made it impossible for any religious college of any religion to exist in the state. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible trend. And the number one discussion we had with candidate Trump was that uh, he needed to replace our, our recently deceased Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia with someone who believed the Constitution said what it said for a reason. And he did that, you know, with Neil Gorsuch. And now he's done it with over 40 nominees on our on our other courts across the country. You know, and then there are other issues like, you know, Christians are uh, and evangelicals are often thought of because of social issues of concern. But actually, you know, we've been fighting for religious liberty so that we can work on other issues, you know, and the evangelical influence has brought criminal justice reform into the discussion. It's brought issues like paid family leave, you know, which is uh, seems so obvious in Europe, but in the United States, it's it's you know not not obvious at all. Mm. So actually, because of the evangelical influence, we've brought a moderating approach into a a more nationalist oriented uh, administration, and including on issues of immigration. You know, the 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 president was dismantling a a, a particular um, program affecting. Uh, Un, young undocumented immigrants that had come in uh, as children and a couple of days before that uh, five or six of us flew to Washington DC we sat right across from him in the Oval Office and he made a totally different decision from the decision that was that was planned because the evangelical community has a voice and listen the one thing that I, I disagree with uh, um, with my uh, evangelical friends who uh, oppose this administration every step of the way is the word resist. You know, there is a mentality among some that they are just resisting, resisting, resisting. And I, I just think that's a very, very hard thing to justify as a Christian. Like, you know, we have to always be able to have a conversation when other people can't. And we've decided whether or not our advice is taken, we're going to give it. And by the way, we criticize the president. We criticize the administration. And the Bible says, like, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Like, I think the the example you gave of what was happening on the on the border and separating, it seemed like separating children from their families. This was the issue where you you went, you sat across the table, and you said, "This isn't this isn't right." Um, I mean, that's a clear example. I think where it seemed like, from from my perspective here in England, I was looking at Twitter and looking at all these blogs in America and talking to people over there, and it's it seemed like 
almost everyone, wherever Republican or Democrat or whatever, we could basically all agree as Christians that it's not a good idea to separate kids from their families in that situation. Yeah, and the attorney general quoted a scripture verse to justify it, and you know, and and People by the way, he's a off. known Christian. People kicked and, off over that, didn't and they? And we we stepped up yeah. immediately and said it was a misuse of the Bible right. and all these things. And yeah. we and we picked up the phone. We called the White House, and the president agreed with us actually, and he and he made a change. And yet, the problem with all this like partisanship is it, it doesn't allow you to have the substance of the conversation. And the fact of the matter is actually that 80% of those children that were arriving on the border were coming at the hands of human traffickers, right? So because the United States has an, has, doesn't have a secure border, you know, it is allowing this illicit trade to continue. And I met with these kids, by the way. It wasn't theory. Like I went and met with the kids in the facility that they were in, which was not a detention center, okay? It was beautiful homes and a, and a, and a very, very um, not- noteworthy school and soccer fields and all that. Every single one of this one facility, 200 kids, every single one of them have been trafficked. Every single one of them. And that's the problem with this division mm. is that we can't actually talk about the merits of all these issues because the truth is the answer is almost always somewhere, mm. somewhere in between. Yeah. We've, we've talked a lot about uh, some of Donald Trump's policies. And I, I hear what you're saying about uh, the good reasons why Christians would support a lot of these policies and some of the influence you've been able to have. How do you deal, though, with the morality question? Because, you know, I would put it to you, for example, that when um, Bill Clinton was in, in the White House, at the time, evangelical Christians said, we cannot trust this man to lead the country because, you know, he's sexually immoral. And yet it seems with Donald Trump, there have been all kinds of, of allegations, again, to do with sexual immorality. And it, it seems like, for whatever reason, evangelical Christians don't seem so concerned about that because, well, he's putting these policies in place. So is there not some kind of a double standard here where with Bill Clinton, evangelicals are very upset and with Trump, we're giving him a free pass? What you have to, I think, understand about Donald Trump in the United States is that he was famous, universally known uh, in, in the country before he ran for president. And so from the very, very beginning, the evangelical community knew who he was and knew about his very, very public past, which he had not shielded at all whatsoever. And yet, you know, we face this we face this moment of uh, an existential threat against the very first clause of our of our First Amendment. And so from from a pragmatic point of view, you know, it it was an easy political decision. But from a moral point of view, it wasn't easy for us. And that's why we got to know him. And and I can tell you, like, you know, the grace of Jesus Christ is even sufficient for Donald Trump. And the Donald Trump that I know today, you know, while still there are plenty of things that he says and does uh, that I would never say or do on Twitter, you know, in in particular, on the same token, like, this is not someone that we uh, are judging from a mile down the road or 10 miles down the road. It's someone that we have an open conversation with. And and I just I just think that... um, you know the the grace of the grace of Jesus uh, is even available uh, to those that. Um, well, let me just say it this way: Jesus was criticized for the same thing. I mean, you remember this, like, you know, why are you hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners? Oh, and, and and frankly, a lot of us we pray for Donald Trump. You know, when he sends a tweet, we pray for him. When he makes a policy decision, we pray for him. And we also recognize. That there is a a admirable moral quality and, and, and in him that that goes through everything, and this is his passion to like, in his own way, to fight for justice, you know, justice as in, 
you know, a, a, a dictator with nuclear weapons in North Korea that could make a decision that could kill 50 million. That, that was the estimates for the potential conflict in the Korean Peninsula. It was not 100,000 people. There's millions and millions and millions of people dying. And there is this, like, sense of justice uh, in inside of him. And uh, I, I can't help but feel, though, that his critics would, would disagree with that idea of, of justice. I mean, for example, the, the kind of racial divides that, that happen in America and how he's been accused of, of stoking some of those. I mean, there's a justice issue that it appears he's not particularly good on. You know, these are these are issues that are not new in American history. By the way, they're not new in the evangelical church either. Uh, and And that's where I think we work really, really hard to... Uh, to sort of separate the two, not not to not be held accountable. I mean, I totally get the criticism, 100% get it. But on the same token, like, hold us accountable for the good that we're doing, and then in our churches, hold us accountable, you know, for the for these other mm. issues of 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 great great concern. And yeah. you know, and the fact is, you know, if you if you don't think you know that we are um, that that we've been critical, of course we've been critical. But on the same token. Like, what should we do? Should we leave the table? It's a difficult position for you because, yeah. of course, you want to be in the conversation and you, you've already referenced you have been able to have some some influence. And yet at the same time, and I think everyone would agree with this, you can't be held accountable for another person's actions. You're only there to to advise. So I, I completely well, understand that. And in the body of Christ, this isn't new either. I mean, when, when Jesus selected his disciples, right, he selected Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Right. He, he selected both. I mean, these two these two groups did not get along. For, I mean, one was a Roman collaborator. The other one wanted to forcefully ta- you know, kick kick Rome out. Mm. And I think we're sort of seeing this in the in mm. the body of Christ you know, throughout the world, especially in the United States. The challenge for evangelicals who feel like they have a uh, a moral obligation to not engage. And those of us who feel like we have a moral obligation to take this influence we have and be a good steward of it. You know, and in fact, on behalf of the voices of those who disagree with us, we're fighting for their religious freedom to disagree with us on religious terms. And yet what we cannot do is we can't break fellowship. You know, and that's where I think it goes awry. Mm. Like instead of spending all of our energy criticizing one another, mm. You know, Jesus set this up the way he did for a reason. It's the whole body of Christ. Yeah. Just just one more question on, on Donald Trump. We'll move on. But I, I wanted to ask you, because some have made this argument, and I don't think this is quite the argument you're making, but some have said he's a baby Christian. He has actually had some kind of spiritual Christian experience. I think people like Paula White have been talking along these lines that in the, in recent years he's made some kind of commitment to Christ. Is that true from your perspective, from what you've seen of him? First of all, I'm not in the business of saying anybody's a Christian, you know, or not. I mean, I think that's the that's the business of God, you know, to determine, you know, who who's made those decisions. I can say I have seen in certain areas a categorical change uh, in in the life of of this man who is very different than he was ten years ago, fifteen years ago, or twenty years ago. I can say that uh, I I've, I've seen the influence of many, many, many pastors on his life, and not just uh, Paula White, but you know, very prominent Southern Baptists like you know, Jack Graham and David Jeremiah and some of these other people in the United States. From my, from my perspective, uh, I believe that we're living in uh, a moment in the United States where the Church of Jesus Christ uh, is having an opportunity every single day to pray with, to be a, a light to and to be a testimony, not only to Donald Trump, but to people across our across our government. And you know, for people like me, the, the other side of the coin too is everybody thinks about Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. 
But you know, it's not just Donald Trump. It's the 22 million people that work for the federal government. I mean, I, I spend as much of my time uh, working you know, with the vice president's office and people in you know, various staff positions you know, throughout the senior staff in the White House and the State Department, other, other divisions of the government. And I can tell you there are more evangelical Christians in this government than any probably in, in American history. We have Bible studies in the White House all the time. You know, Mike Pence is a devout, devout evangelical Christian. You know, so um, uh, it's up to God as to whether you know the president uh, has put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I think there's plenty of evidence to believe it, and I'm for sure that there is an ongoing testimony and more prayer in that building than perhaps in our since our early history. We should uh, we should go back to another issue we talked about earlier in the interview because uh, you know as we were remarking earlier, everyone wants to talk about Donald Trump, and there are some things that just hit the headlines. And yet, I think we both agree there are some things that don't hit the headlines that should. And we've talked already a lot about the persecution of Christians. I mean, I, I speak to people who um, I mean, there was a video going around on Facebook the other day. They put a world map in front of people on the street. And uh, this was a kind of vox pop scenario where they just got up to a random American and said, here's a world map. Can you name any country other than America? <laughs> now, now, obviously, there was... I some... know the answer to this. <laughs> now, obviously, obviously, there was some selective editing involved. I'm sure plenty of people couldn't. They didn't show it on camera, but they just edited it. I so they showed that the that's people. true. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was, trying to, I was trying to give your countrymen Thank the you. benefit of the doubt. Um, but you, you, you can see where I'm heading with this. That, um, so, you know, it's been pointed out a lot of Americans don't have a passport. A lot of Americans aren't really in touch with world news. Now, clearly, that's not you. You've traveled all over the world. You really care about this subject. Um, but is there a problem that, that some Americans don't have the issue of Christian persecution on their radar? Because for whatever reason, it's a more kind of closed mindset. We're just talking about Donald Trump in the White House. We, when we turn on our, our TV news, we're not hearing about Iraq or Syria. We're certainly yeah. not hearing about the persecution of Christians. Th- th- these things must frustrate you. Yeah, and it's the job of the church to fill in the gap. By the way, it's the job of the church to to bridge the political gap. You know, I, I've often said, like, it's the job of the government to decide who gets in countries. It's the job of the church to serve those who do. And it's the job of the church to serve people all around the world. And it is true. You know, America is an insular place. We're not, you know, uh, overly educated in other countries of the world. But the church has been global from the very beginning. And I, I think it's an indictment on our pastors and our leaders that, that Christian people in the United States aren't the most educated on the world. And the tragedy of the whole thing is, you know, it's not just about advocacy for, you know, the persecuted. It's about what it does to our faith when we aren't exposed to them. I mean, when you hear these incredible stories around the world of people who are willing to die for Jesus Christ, who lose and sacrifice so much, like it's it makes it real what Jesus said, like the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field and that, that guy sold the whole, everything he had to buy that field just to get that treasure. Like the gospel is worth everything in the world. It's worth selling everything you have to get this one thing. And yet Jesus gives it to us for free. And we don't get that in the West uh, in the way it, it, it has gotten intuitively among mm-hmm. among the persecuted. And so I, I think I think Christians, leaders in particular in the United States, have a special responsibility. And not only to just educate their congregations. Like every Sunday ought to be a persecuted Christian Sunday. But they got to take them there. Like I, my heart would not have been lit on fire on this issue had I not gone there and met these people for myself. And in that experience, it's a flame. I can't put out. I mean, I, I, I got lots of things going on, lots of things, but it's like it's inside of me because I saw it. I went there. And so I, I think that, you know, the tragedy is we're robbing our faith of our actual mm-hmm. faith mm-hmm. by not being exposed. Absolutely. Well, sadly, we're out of time, but there's lots more on that if you want to check it out in Johnny's book, Defying ISIS, which is out now. Johnny, if people want to keep up uh, to date with you and hear more from you, where should they go? Uh, Twitter is the best place, at Johnny M, J-O-H-N-N-I-E-M.
Thank you so much for coming in, Johnny. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Premier Christianity Magazine. In this month's issue, we speak with best-selling Christian author Francine Rivers, whose hugely popular novel, Redeeming Love, defined a generation. In this rare interview, she explains how her most loved characters came to life and reveals the reason she doesn't want people reading some of her books. Plus, does believing in God give you an edge in the boxing ring? The man who trained former heavyweight champion Tyson Fury seems to think so. And discover the true meaning of five important biblical words. All this and more in November's issue. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Good news, we've slashed the cost of subscribing to the UK's leading Christian magazine. Now you can read news from a Christian perspective and interviews with fascinating leaders for half the normal price. That's 12 issues of Premier Christianity magazine for less than £20. Plus, take out a subscription and we'll enter you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books. There's never been a better time to subscribe. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. You're listening to The Profile. This is the show where we sit down with someone to find out more about their life, their faith and their testimony. This show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, you can go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today on The Profile, I am speaking to Andrew Haslam. Andrew is the leader of Grace London, a new church that started in 2014. And I'm here to find out not only about Grace London, but also about Andrew's life. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's great to have you here. Um, Here on The Profile, we always like to go back to the beginning and hear about a person's early life. Now, I understand you grew up uh, as the son of Greg Haslam, who will be known to many, pastoring Westminster Chapel for many years. Can you tell us a bit about... um, about that kind of context growing up uh, in in that kind of a church setting. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in the early 80s when uh, shortly after my dad became a pastor of Stanmore Evangelical Free Church, it was called at the time. It was um, a small church met in a temporary building, which they kind of described as a chicken shed. And um, he was fresh out of Bible college. But he, throughout the 80s and 90s, the church um, flourished and uh, became a really vibrant, large city center church in the in middle of Winchester. Um, it's now called Hope Church. But we, yeah, growing up, I had two brothers. Growing up in a pastor's home was the biggest privilege. I mean, a lot of guys um, have a kind of pastor's kid syndrome. Yes, they it's, call it the PK syndrome, Exactly, don't they? yeah. But for me... I, I honestly look back and I have so much gratitude to God. I think, you know, there's lots of ways you can approach that. But I think the most important thing for me was that my parents were really consistent in their faith. And my dad, you know, was always a massive reader. So I, he had the most thought through faith. And that meant that as, a, you know, growing up, any questions we threw at him, he was able to field them. He was able to help us think through our faith. He shaped our minds as boys. And so... Yeah, for me and my brothers, growing up in his home was an incredible privilege, and I have the highest admiration for my dad. Great church, wonderful ministry to the city. So this was, um, as you say, in Winchester when you were growing up. Yeah. And was it after that he then moved to Westminster Chapel? Yeah, 2002. Um, 
it was a little bit of a process, yeah. but yeah. Well, give give us some of the context of Westminster Chapel for those who don't know, because uh, really this is a, a very well-regarded church because of its heritage and some of the mm. people who've led that church in the past, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the chapel had national and international fame because of George Campbell Morgan, uh, then later Martin Lloyd-Jones, and more recently R.T. Kendall, who's had a big platform. Um, it's a really prominent free church in the centre of London, massive building, um, and it's obviously gone up and down over the years in attendance, but in its heyday has been mm. f- profoundly influential. Yeah. Yeah. So why was why was your dad asked to, to lead it? What led up to that? Well, he'd been at London Seminary back in the 1970s and attended the chapel and got to know R.T. Kendall. And uh, my parents were impacted by R.T.'s ministry personally. So when my dad became a pastor in the 80s, R.T. was the man who ordained him into ministry. And they kept touch a little bit over the years in between. Dad preached at the chapel a few times. But I think when R.T. was considering retirement, you know, he racked his mind about the kind of person that he wanted to kind of take over. And I think his two criteria were, one, that they needed to align theologically. And for that, he looked into the New Frontiers world, which is where my dad, what he was a part of at the time. But he also wanted someone who was a capable preacher and uh, whilst Dad's platform was always smaller than RT's, he 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 had a really phenomenal preaching gift and uh, impacted many lives through his ability to kind of open up the Word of God. So I think that was why RT invited him to be among the candidates who were considered for the the role. So growing up in that kind of an environment, was there any ever kind of any pressure or expectation that you would follow in your dad's footsteps and become a pastor yourself? No, none at all. Um, both of my brothers have taken a different route and we were never, to my recollection, ever encouraged to follow that. And the desire came entirely from me. Well, I, I would say I think God put it in my heart. Um, I was very young. Um, about the age of 10, I, I really felt a deep conviction that I felt was from God that I was going to be a pastor. And I told my parents shortly after that. And, you know, dad encouraged me in the years that followed. But there was never any pressure. And I think certainly for my dad, he has such a high sense of the call of God in ministry. He would take a a line similar to Spurgeon or Lloyd-Jones, who would say that if a man can do anything else, he should. And uh, so there was never a sense in which, you know, ministry was the highest pinnacle. He also had a strong conviction about calling that spans every aspect of of life, you know, that you can be called into all kinds of things. So he never put the gospel ministry as a kind of, you know, as the number one calling in his mind and would have been equally happy had I chosen another route, I think. Mm. Yeah, from around the age of 10, I really felt... Um, it's really young. Yeah, it is young. I'd, you know, I'd I'd had other ideas before that, as every little boy does. I thought I might be a runner at one stage or a vet or something else. But it was, honestly, for a period of a few weeks, I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and saying, you're going to be a pastor. And... Um, so I set my mind to it from that age and never looked wow. back, actually. yeah. Wow. So what was the next step? Was the next step going to, well, obviously not the age of 10 when you'd grown up a yeah. little bit, go to university and study theology? Yeah, I studied theology at King's College London, which is a more um, secular academic context. And after that, I went to Oak Hill, which is a seminary in North London where it's a more, um, you know, I suppose a Bible-based curriculum. 
and wow. I loved it immensely. I imagine there must have been huge differences between those two things. I mean, I've spoken to many people, sadly, who will say, well, actually, I went to, as you say, a secular institution, university to study theology, and actually it really hurt my faith or, or really harmed my faith. I found it really, really difficult. Was, was that your experience as well? I think it probably did undermine my faith in ways I didn't see at the time. But by and large, when you're exposed to... Um, some of the liberal theology that you encounter in university, often you realize that it's quite empty and and vacuous. And I had a, a lot of help from, you know, I'd, I had good books. I had my dad. I had um, people I could talk to who I respected. And I think it, you just have to go into it with a mind that you are going to, you're going to, you need to understand what people who don't hold to orthodox faith believe, but also you have to know your your stance and read both sides of, of that. And uh, if anything, it can make you stronger in the long run. Mm. You realize how amazing a gift the Word of God is, and so on. Yeah. yeah. So that was three years at King's College. Was three it? years, yeah. Now three years of theology would be enough for many people. So sure. so why go to Oak Hill as well? I think because um, at the end of a university course, you don't feel particularly equipped for ministry. Um, I I knew that there were holes in my own sort of education, and Oak Hill offered um, they offered the chance to study part time for a master's, and it was just a perfect way for me to start working in the church, get experience, hands on experience in ministry, but also listen and hear from some of the most gifted teachers in the country. I would say at the the time when I was studying at Oak Hill, men who I have the highest respect for. And uh, I, I, I think it's, it's become increasingly fashionable, certainly in charismatic circles, for guys to shun biblical training, training in, you know, theological training. But I don't take that view at all because I think I really believe that you can get, um, it, can, it can squash your faith, it can leave you flat, it can leave you somewhat passionless and, and detached from the real needs of people. But equally, there is such a need uh, for people who have a robust, um, you know, a mind that's shaped by um, the best of th- uh, theological training that you can get. And it's certainly my dad made an impression on me in that regard. Mm. And uh, friends I knew were going there. So it was a, it, it became a clear option for me. Yeah. What Was there a, a natural next step at the end of that process? Yeah, well, I was at the chapel with my dad and my family. And um, because I'd been already helping out in a number of ministries and had leadership in some aspects... Some of the guys there kind of lobbied the um, the leaders of the church to give me a, a full-time role, um, which I was appreciative of. It meant that it kind of bypassed me, it bypassed my dad, there was no nepotism involved, and it was it gave the opportunity for me to be assessed on my merits, and so I ended up working for the chapel full-time sh- uh, immediately after I graduated. Was there never any concern that even though it happened fairly through th- this uh, other body of leaders to put you in that position, did it still look like nepotism? Was that ever probably. a Probably. Yeah, probably. No one had the courage to tell me that. But, <laughs> Everyone's yeah. too polite in church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it probably did. And, you know, there are all kinds of issues working with your family, as I discovered over the time that followed. But um, it felt like the right decision at the time. And, and um, yeah, there's certainly benefits to it as well. Yeah. So you were there working with your dad at Westminster Chapel for for some time. Yeah, about seven years full time. Yeah. And was that sort of training in in preaching and and everything else or what it means to be a church leader, kind of learning from your dad and learning from other people? Yeah, I think so. He gave me a lot of free reign, but I led a couple of 
uh, ministries, you know, with students and young people and set up the home groups in the church and increasingly picked up a preaching load as I went through um, the years and kind of just figured it out as I went along pretty much. But, you know, Central London Church, the the demographic, the people that you mix with, it's very different to other places. So your your ministry experience is somewhat different to, say, pastoring in a small town or a village. In what way? Mainly because, well, um, you know, certainly my impression of churches in smaller towns is that a pastor has way more time with people. And uh, in central London, my experience is that people don't necessarily reach out to you for pastoral visits or, you know, um, opportunities for counseling sessions or whatever it is that, you know, can fill a pastor's time. So you do a little of that, but way less, I think, um, because there's so much more emphasis on on Sunday, on the preaching, on those aspects of church life. It's just a different animal, I think. And uh, I could see that comparing my life growing up in Winchester to being in the center of mm. London. It's really very different. Yeah. But you're still here in London, yeah, and we'll yeah. come on to what you're doing in a moment. But but why why stay in London? Uh, was there a moment of kind of falling in love with, with this city here? Absolutely. It happened pretty much pretty much instantaneously. So I'd grown up in Winchester. It was a very white town. It's more diverse now. Uh, not a particularly big town. It's a very wealthy place, though we were not that wealthy. But, you know, it is a wealthy place. And so it's a very narrow segment of British society. And coming to London, I fell in love with the diversity, the kinds of people I could rub shoulders with at church, um, inspiring people, people in all kinds of interesting roles and jobs and professions. And the city itself, I mean, I think some people hate it. I, I can I can understand it's, it can be suffocating at times, but I was absolutely captivated by it, and I still am. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I, I like going outside London, but I always crave the opportunity to come. I want to come home as soon as possible. So I had no intention to leave mm-hmm. at any point, and still don't. Mm-hmm. You mentioned already that the kind of heritage that somewhere like Westminster Chapel has people like R.T. Kendall, Martin Lloyd-Jones previously preaching there. Did you ever feel that, I guess, weight of responsibility or, or history when, when you were there? Did that ever enter into your kind of consciousness in day-to-day life, or is it best to sort of put that to one side and get on with the job? It definitely does. It weighs on you. You walk through, you know, you walk through the building. You can. There's a room where they have the old robe which Lloyd-Jones used to wear, um, and the, the Bible he preached from, a massive King James Bible, which is the kind of pulpit Bible. There's the archives, there's... There's a statue of one of the old ministers. You have there's lots of things which will remind wow. you of the heritage of the church. Sounds almost like a museum. It, it well parts of it, like corners of it, you can yeah you can get that feel. And the building itself, you know, I've read a number of Lloyd Jones books. It's always on the cover and in the photo of it. There's no way you can really detach the church from its history. But for me, that was always an upside. I always felt the immense privilege of being in a place which had really changed the direction of Christianity in the West because of Lloyd-Jones' amazing ministry and his emphasis on Puritans and Reformed theology and things like this. So I I always felt the weight of it as a real privilege. And I think it probably gets to you more if you're the senior pastor, um, trying, you know, a lot of people look to you. Are you as good as the guys who went before you? So I never had to sit in that seat. Um, but yeah, there's something captivating about a church with a history. Mm. It, did that kind of history uh, almost to a certain extent dictate who would show up? I mean, would you have people who go to Westminster Chapel 
because they're such huge fans, for want of a better term, of someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones. Without a doubt. I mean, you get crowds of tourists coming through in the week who want to have a look around, and not to mention people who come on Sundays. But increasingly, that's less the case, I think, because um, these men are forgotten. And, you know, they, Lloyd-Jones retired in, I think, the late 60s, 68. So there's very few people who've been impacted by his ministry who are around today. And, you know, I, I think I think that heritage has less of an impact today and it's just more of a local church now mm. with its own life and its own mission. Mm. I guess to a certain extent, someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones is, is now a figure of church history rather yeah. than a, a contemporary figure, as, as you say. Um, but you mentioned he's he's been, you feel like he's been forgotten in some ways? Yeah. Um, well, there's a segment of the church that remembers and loves him, but they tend to be... Um, the ultra conservatives and he's appreciated more I think in the United States Korea um, other countries than he is here and I think a lot of people who I talk to have never heard of him mm. which is which is a tragedy his his works his books are amazing mm. uh, his preaching I don't know if there's ever been a preacher as gifted or as able as him do you think um, do you think that's partly because he's not necessarily the easiest person to read that people don't perhaps pick up his books. They'd rather something a bit lighter, a bit fluffier. Definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me started, but yeah, there is something of that. Actually, when you get into him, he's not difficult at all. The problem is that the subject matter doesn't appear to be immediately, doesn't grab you in the same way that, you know, the, the Christian paperbacks do. Right, because they tended to be commentaries on Romans or... Yeah, exactly. But, you know, some of the individ- single volumes are amazing. His book on revival is amazing. His book, Joy Unspeakable, about the work of the Holy Spirit, is amazing. His book on preaching, Preaching and Preachers, everybody who preaches has to read that book. There's just no debate on the issue. There's nothing like it. It's amazing. And those books are page turners. I get some of the young guys in our church to read them. Um, They're reading one at the moment, the book on revival, and we'll be discussing it in a couple of weeks' time with some of the guys. And they, they have they have loved his books. And I guess it's it's a surprise because you think, you know, he's from a bygone age now, you know. Um, but it's not the case at all. He is so punchy, authoritative, relevant, and I think his his his, his preaching is, is amazing. And the books are basically his sermons put into print. So, yeah. Well, we love book, book recommendations, so that's great. That's plenty to go away and dig up, dig out some good uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But we should move on because I'm sure we could both talk about someone like that for a very long time indeed. Um, as I say, you were ministering in this place, amazing heritage and, and history. So what happened when the time came to leave? I mean, I guess the question is why leave? I always knew that I felt called to church planting or I still, I knew, I'd known it for a long time. And... I felt loyal to my dad. I felt loyal to my family. I wanted to stay. I wanted to help. But also, I felt a, a pull. You know, at some point when you're a younger guy in ministry and you feel the weight of what you want to do, you know, you have to wrestle with that tension. Um, you know, things, working with my own father was a mixed blessing. I love him to, I love him immensely. He's unwell now uh, with Alzheimer's. But, you know, at the time we, I, I felt the huge privilege of working for him, but equally there's a challenge in that. And if you disagree, you know, in a leadership team meeting, then family dynamics are kind of a little bit unhelpful at times. And all of this stuff came into play. And I, I, I you know, beginning of 2013, I just felt in my spirit I had to go fairly soon, that mm. it, the time was coming. And I'd been there a long time. And that how point. old were you at this point? 
30. Right. Yeah. Uh, just turning 30. So, yeah, so I, I broached the subject with my parents. It didn't go down too well to begin oh, with, really? as you can imagine. Um, yeah, because they just, you know, they just, I guess it's a parent thing, isn't it? But... um. Well, I guess, you know, with the greatest respect to your parents, they'd, they'd had you around exactly. for longer than most parents would have their kids exactly, around. Exactly, yeah. Um, and by that point, we were expecting our first child, and, you know, I was, I'm married, of course, and, you know, there was there's all this stuff. But I... So, and I think there's also, you know, the weight of feeling like Chapel had a greater future, and we were working towards that. You know, when you're in a church like that, the, the sense of what is lying ahead of you is immense. You feel pulled into the future and they were you know they wanted me to help with the work that was going on there but I I also just knew that you know I've been so impacted by you know guys like um, Tim Keller on the need for church planting in cities and I knew that chapel would be fine without me and you know I wasn't integral to to what was happening and I knew that I had Mm. a call so I began to kind of shift my feet a little bit and find a way and for those who perhaps don't share that understanding or background in church planting why was it or why is it that you believe so strongly in church planting because some might say well you know stick around at Westminster Chapel and in terms of numbers couldn't you grow that church to being a bigger church what what what's the need in having to go away and start something brand new from scratch there's lots of ways you can approach that but one of them is just recognizing that the gospel has an inherent design to cause multiplication. And in a city like London, you see the need for the gospel to multiply. And that part of that is realizing that, that we need way more churches. London needs thousands more churches. And I, I say that without any hesitation because it's a church of millions. It's a city of millions of people. And, you know, a lot of people have to travel a long way to a good church or they're traveling into these big churches in the center. And it doesn't necessarily build the kind of church life and community life that's needed or that will impact the city in the way that it needs, you know, needs the gospel impact. So I I, I don't I, I think it's wonderful that chapel continues with what it's doing, but the need for church planting mm. is immense. And, you know, I had no shadow of doubt about that. It was. Yeah. So tell me about the beginnings of Grace London. What were your first steps? We kind of figured out where we wanted to be. But prior to that, we'd asked a few friends to join us. And uh, so seven other people came, uh, agreed that they would be part of what we were going to do. And was this Westminster Chapel very much sending you out? Yes. Yeah. They gave us some money to get us started. And they said we could invite some folks. So um there was, you know, a fairly small group who who agreed to come, the crazier ones. But, um, but that was, you know, early 2014, and we actually weren't sure where we were going to be at that stage. Um, we were living centrally, but I, you know, I'd, I'd had some ideas about where we might be. But it wasn't until, you know, my wife and I were really seeking God about this, and we came to this kind of realization that the Waterloo area in London, which is a fairly big patch, and it's right bang in the centre. I didn't have a church that was preaching the gospel. The churches that were there had really gone, you know, off the rails. You know, the Anglicans in the area, unfortunately, are not orthodox in their approach to faith. And, you know, you could cite the examples of the churches there. And I realized there needed to be a church there that just believed the gospel and took God's word as it is the word of God. And um, so when we began, the idea just got legs. And we realized that all these friends we'd asked lived in the area. 
So the earliest, you know, experience of that was we just began meeting in our home uh, once a fortnight, just forming a small team and trying to embed the values of what we believed in. But without really knowing what to do next, we just started a Sunday service above a pub in um, in Lambeth North, which is in the Waterloo area. We rented a function room upstairs in a, in a pub called the Horse and Stables. And, um, you know, it was the ideal context because we were small. We wanted to be informal. And people began to join us from from the first Sunday. So it picked up momentum uh, through that first term. How do people even hear about something like that? I mean, as you say, you you don't even have any premises. You're just meeting in a room above, uh, you know, in a pub. How do people even know that you exist? Presumably this is just word of mouth. Yeah, primarily. I, I blogged a bit about it. Some people had read some of that online. So there was a little bit of interest. But most of what, most of the people who came, came because someone invited them. And so we began to get momentum through that, which I was really happy about. You know, I think I think word of mouth growth is easiest in church planting because you in, immediately have a connection and community. Mm. And if you just sort of put your banner in the ground and make a, a song and dance about planting a church and you gather a crowd, it's, it's quite hard then to shape the crowd in the way that, you know, to form a community that's along the lines of what you believe the church should be. So growing just one in ones and twos as we did was actually the easiest thing from my point of view and it enabled us to get to know everybody so you're about four years in now would you still describe yourselves as a church plant no i think uh we had our first elder appointments earlier this year and for me that was always a threshold moment when paul planted churches he would establish a congregation and then you know like he told titus he said you know to finish what i started in crete and appoint elders in every town and I think Paul's pattern was the one we tried to follow. We said we'll, get, we'll gather a church, and then as it forms, you know, when you see who the leaders are, we'll we'll appoint elders. And so that was for me the threshold moment when we became, a, you know, a full-grown church, which is a bit of weird even for me now. But yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so what does it look like now? Still meeting in that pub, or have you moved on? And how no, many people? We, we moved twice since then. Um, we moved to a little theatre after that in a railway arch, a very smelly, mouldy place, um, which was interesting. But it, it worked pretty well for us at the time. But we uh, outgrew that, and we moved then to um, a building on Stamford Street in Waterloo, which is um, spacious and light and airy. We probably have we have two services at the moment. We probably have between 130 and 160 on a Sunday at the moment. Yeah. There are many, many churches in in London. Did you feel like you had a a sense from God that there'd be certain distinctives about what would be almost the emphasis of Grace London in a way that it hasn't been in other churches in in the area? Yeah, I think inevitably you have your own stamp, you know, the things which are your core convictions when you're a pastor. And I certainly have that. Um, I think because of my influences, my parents, my growing up in a New Frontiers background, there were certain things that definitely characterise my convictions and that would be uh, one I think probably highest on the list of being being gospel centered the idea that the gospel is not just the way that non-christians come to know Jesus but it's also necessary for Christians to grow in maturity in their faith and always you know therefore that shapes the way we preach we always want to talk about Jesus no matter where we're in the bible or whatever we're talking about that was my my number one passion in starting the church um 
but along with that, there are other things which I think are distinctives. You know, we're charismatic. We believe in the work of the Holy Spirit today and the gifts of the Spirit and so on. Though it's not always like massively evident on a Sunday for us, like it might be in other contexts, but um, it's certainly there and it's under the surface mm. and it's how we think and operate. Um, we are complementarian in our stance, which is to say that we believe the Bible's teaching is that um, eldership is male and um, I know that that's the kind of issue that gets me into trouble. We have a number of people in our own church who wouldn't agree with that, and I have to dialogue with them about it. But you know, it's you know that as it says, you, when your conscience is captive to the Word of God, like Luther said, you feel that you don't have liberty to change your stance on on certain issues, and that would be one of them. But we have women leading all kinds of things in our church, and it's wonderful, and I love seeing um, God use them. But that was just for me an important conviction and not one that's necessarily shared across churches in London, or one that people even think still exists. I mean, who who believes that today? A lot of people just like look at you with puzzlement. But that was important for us. We were committed to that. And I think probably another huge thing for us was the emphasis on community. If you're planting in London, you can gather a crowd. You can, you can kind of gather, you can make, put a, a high value on production and entertainment and gather a crowd. And it, that was that always felt to me entirely wrong. It had to be a church where people were going to be confronted with the, the truth of, of God's word and, and the reality of the gospel, but also where relationships would be genuine. And it's not easy to sustain that, partly because of the massive turnover in church life. I mean, we've said goodbye to a couple of hundred people in the four years we've existed, which is crazy. I mean, you don't experience that elsewhere. But... But we're constantly working to build community so that people try and live fairly local to where we meet. They're in each other's homes all the time. And uh, we we talk about it all the time as being really vital Mm. to our church life. What do you know about church planting now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Probably that it'll be okay. I think I worried too much before we started. And it was so uncertain. You know, I... It didn't know if we'd have enough money to continue, didn't know if anyone would join. And, you know, Jesus said that the day has enough trouble of its own, not to be anxious, but it's hard to take that to heart when you, you know, I had a, a young son who is, you know, born not long before, a family to support, and the the sense of call, and you just don't want this to fail. I think knowing that it'll be okay was huge. And I know that not all church plants work out, but even when they don't, it's okay. Like, you know, God is sovereign and you can trust him. So that's a huge thing. Look, reflecting back, I wish I'd just been a bit happier, a bit more kind of content and joyful <laughs> in the moment rather than anxious about it. Yeah, that would be huge. That's a great message. Christians should maybe be a bit more joyful in general sometimes. <laughs> just sometimes, maybe. Controversial. Andrew, it's been great to talk to you. Here's, so, uh, you know, here's some of your story. I'm sorry we've run out of time, but thank you for coming on the show and chatting. It's been great. Thank you, Sam.